Okay, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Looking today at the first of two parts in 2 Timothy 1 verses 6 through 12. Title of the sermon, Be Not Ashamed. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are endowed with both privileges and responsibilities. We've been given the hope of eternal life, the joy of rewards which can never fade away. We have been given the Spirit of God by which the power of sin over us has been broken so that we might walk in newness of life and, and through whom we might have the fruit of the Spirit produced in us unto joy and unto testimony. But what we have and the manner in which we live is spiritual in nature. And I'd like to begin this morning uh, as an introduction to this passage, talking about the nature of our spiritual relationship with God and the differentiation between the carnal and the spiritual. What we have, the manner in which we live, is spiritual in nature. It is real, it is clear, it is manifest, but it is spiritual, understood and lived out by faith. Paul would thus say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. The reality that we walk by faith and not by sight in no way diminishes our confidence in the truthfulness, the veracity of our profession. Anyone who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, anyone who has walked and lived in the power of God knows without question the reality of the power of God, knows without question the reality of the truths of God's word. But as we have said so many times, this blessing, the blessing of this knowledge, the reality as it stands is an outworking of faith. That faith always precedes blessing so that I will not and indeed I cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, the outworking of my faith until I have exercised that faith. And this is why the manner in which we live consequently is so important because the unbelieving world has two witnesses of the truths. We might say three witnesses of the truths of God's word. The Witness, well, witness to the truth of God is creation, right? But the witnesses to the truths of God's word are, are primarily twofold. The first witness is the Holy Spirit of God, which commends these things to the hearts of men. The second witness is to the reality of these things is manifest in the lives of those who have already taken that step of faith. In the lives of those who have already taken that step of faith becomes a proof, becomes a witness to the truths of God's word. So they have these two primary witnesses to truth, the Holy Spirit and you are my testimony. I remember when I was younger, one of the, we would go to this pool and the pool had a high dive. You know, the typical pool has the low kind of right, maybe a, you know, a couple feet off of the water diving board and you'd go off that diving board and it would be fine. And then you had the high dive and the high dive was significantly higher 
and the water was significantly deeper. And I remember uh, it was a big deal with each of my family members, uh, each of my, my, my siblings, when we would do the high dive at this particular pool. Mom and dad would bring the tape recorder and they'd tape it because it was the big deal when we finally got up, uh, when we were old enough, and then we finally got up the courage to do the high dive. And one of the things about that high dive uh, was that you would um, go to somebody who's already been on it, right? and say, what was it like? Or you'd watch someone jump off of it and go down, and then they get out and, and you'd say, did it hurt? You're looking for someone who has already manifested the experience, and you're looking to them to understand an experience which you cannot in and of yourself understand until you have done it. Well, we, we have something that the world does not have. But more than that, we have something that the world cannot understand. And the only way that they can relate themselves to it is the testimony of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and you. So that you say, yes, I have experienced this. This is what happens. This is why I am the way I am. And this is why the manner we live is so important. What this means is that for those who have not taken that step of faith, the things of God are at best a mystery right? Quite, also, uh, quite possibly also foolishness unto them, and with many, even offensive unto them, because what you have is so different from what they understand. And this puts the believers in an interesting place. We know without controversy the truth of the things that we have, the truth of the things that we've experienced by grace through faith. We know, we know it. There's no mistaking the reality of the new creation. Not everyone who believes changes long-standing thoughts and actions in an instant, but the mind, the relationship of the believer to the things of this world inevitably changes. If any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The things which once defined us as unbelievers now bring us shame. The things which once brought us comfort now bring us remorse. The things which once we thought, we now think the opposite. And while the sin nature is still very much in us, the allure of the sin nature is still very much existent, there is not that same satisfaction in indulging the sin nature that perhaps once there was. Because we know that the end of those things is death. And if we know that the end of those things is death, you simply can't enjoy them the way you once did if you know that the end of those things is hollow, is empty, if you know that the things of this world, that, 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 that all of the things that the world craves, all of the things that the world holds up, all of the things that the world uh, um, pursues, once you have been enlightened to the reality that those things are empty, that, that it's all just going to burn up anyway, it's hard to put quite as much value, love, effort, or, or see satisfaction in it because you know how very temporary, how very fleeting, how very unfulfilling it all is. To this end, there is a distinct divide between the mind of the unbeliever and the mind of the believer. And this divide is described in many places in Scripture, but perhaps no better than Paul's discussion of these concepts in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 29, Paul writes this. 
For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are, the, are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. So Paul contrasts here the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. Paul reminds us that to the unbeliever, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. The idea that we are all sinners, that we are separated from God, that we are in desperate need of salvation, which we cannot earn, which we cannot deserve, but which, that, which God has in himself purchased for us through his own death. The reality that the things that we can see and the things that we can taste and the things that we can touch and the things that we can hear are actually the temporal things. And the things that we cannot see are the eternal things. That the things of this life, that, that this life is as if it were the dream and that the world that is to come is the reality that we are going to wake up into one day. And that's, that is a paradigm shift. That is a fundamental paradigm shift. That God has seen fit in his wisdom to use what he calls the preaching, the foolishness of preaching, thus to commend the truth to the world, is something that the world has a hard time with. And by doing so, by making it so, by using the foolishness of preaching, by using the words which are spoken and the Spirit of God commending those words to the hearts of men, God makes the gospel a faith proposition. And for this reason, not many wise men after the flesh, in other words, not many people who are wise in the flesh, not many people who are mighty in the flesh, and not many who are noble in the flesh will, will accept the gospel. It doesn't mean they can't accept the gospel. But what Paul is saying here is that when a man has all of that wisdom in his head and he's been able to always solve all of his problems rationally, it's going to be a whole lot harder for him to take that step of faith. When a man is very mighty, when he's strong, when he has always been able to pull himself up by his own bootstraps, when he's always been able to power through anything he needs, it's going to be much harder for him to say, God, I'm weak. I cannot get myself to heaven. When a man is noble, when a man is of high birth, when a man is of, of high reputation, and he's always been able to, through his charisma, through his leadership, through his capacities, uh, get people, rally people, get things done. And he has to say, Lord, I can't do this. There's no amount of charisma that can get me to heaven. 
There's no amount of, 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 of birth nobility. There's no amount of aristocracy. There's no amount, I, I, can, I can walk into any place in the world and be regarded, but before your throne, I am nothing. That's hard for the noble of this world. And so God has created this system that is fundamentally by faith and that levels the playing field so that the king and the servant both come the same way. And yet, within the system, based on human nature, it's actually easier for the servant to overcome his own recognition of himself than it is for the king. Because the servant has already lived lowly. He knows what it is to be lowly. The servant has perhaps lived impoverished. He knows what it is to, not, to need help. The servant has perhaps lived in weakness. He knows what it is to have others stronger than he. And so he, it's easier for him to clear that hurdle and exercise that faith. The same faith. It's the same faith. We, have to, we each have to come to the same door. It's just the noble, the mighty, the wise are going to be less inclined to want to go to that door. We do not allure men thus with riches, with honor or with might. We proclaim the truth. The Spirit draws men, and God saves as many as will believe. Paul continues this discussion in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians and clarifies that the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, are only understood by those who by faith receive it. So we read this in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Verse 14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Here it is. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. So the natural man, the carnal man, the part of us that is carnal, and, and uh, even as believers, we have a carnal part, right? The flesh. That part cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. And then, of course, the person who is in the flesh, who is not a believer and does not have the Spirit of God, as Romans 8 says, if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his, right? That man is carnal in everything he does. He also cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. Now, this does not by any means imply that the carnal man cannot know or hear the words of the Bible or understand the words of the Bible, but only that the spiritual concepts found in those words can only make sense to one who has the Spirit of God. This is why, as I mentioned just a few moments ago in our prayer request time, when, we, when I talk about the people in the jail and they make a profession of faith, and then we start talking about whether or not that profession was genuine, I need time to see that. I start to look for the signs, right? You look for the sign that they begin to actually understand what the Bible's saying. Not that they know the words of the Bible, but that they're understanding the spiritual concepts of the Bible. Because that means the Spirit of God is inside them because only the spiritual can understand the spiritual. You begin to look for signs that they're under conviction of the Holy Ghost because God convicts through his spirit, and if they have the spirit of God, then they will be under conviction, right? So these are the things that, you, uh, that, that, that I tell you I'm looking for to validate whether or not a genuine profession had taken place. 
because those are the marks of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is in every believer. So any man can understand the concepts of the Word of God, but not the spiritual elements that undergird it. Any man can understand the idea, the concept of dying to self in order to live unto Christ, but it will only make sense, that spiritual concept will only make sense to one who has the Spirit of God to illuminate him. Any man can understand the concept of yielding the things of this life for the things of a life that is to come. Right? Islam gets that pretty well. The ancient Greeks got that pretty well. The ancient Romans got that pretty well with all of their paganism. But the spiritual necessity and the power of such a call can only be understood by those who have the Spirit of God as their teacher. And once again, this puts those who are believers in a unique place. And this is what we're driving at in our introduction today. We live in a, by an entirely different standard than the unbelieving world. We have an entirely different outlook on life. We have an entirely different authority structure in our lives. And we have an entirely different set of motivations for doing what we do and not doing what we don't do. And this, in many ways, is the, the primary proof in my own heart that I'm a believer. It's not so much whether or not I'm actually doing different things than the unbeliever. There are any number of things in this world that the believer and the unbeliever might both do. But why are we doing them? How much weight do we put upon them? What is the end goal of them? That underlying worldview will determine whether or not the scales have fallen off my eyes whether or not I've been indwelled by the Spirit of God, whether or not I am indeed a new creation in Christ with a new heavenly citizenship, so I walk by faith and not by sight, I live for that world and not this world, or whether or not I'm in the flesh. And this is a set of motivations which the unbeliever simply cannot understand. No matter how religious they are, no matter how much experience they have with the church, the carnal man cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God. I'm listening to uh, a, a set of lectures right now on the Cold War. And one of the things that has become very apparent and interesting in relation to the Cold War is just how little the United States understood Soviet Russia. They thought that they were able to, on diplomatic terms, give them various concessions and that, that they could thus coexist in a world. And what the United States government and the leaders of the, of the, the free world, many of them did not understand, is that that is not how Soviet Russians thought. There was such a cultural disconnect between the intentions of the communists and the understanding of the free world that they were miles apart even as they were talking one right across from another, they simply could not, they did not understand the culture. They did not understand the mindset. They did not even understand the very foundational motivations of Soviet Russia. That sort of an idea where the unbeliever looks at us and they have lived their entire lives in carnality and they say, I don't even get, I, I don't understand your motivations. I don't understand the authority structure you've placed yourself under. The unbelieving world cannot understand it because they do not have the Spirit of God. And this puts the church in an interesting spot, doesn't it? Where the unbeliever 
around us will see the things we'll do, will hear the things that we say. Some will be genu genuinely interested. Why, why do you do this? They'll be curious. But there are any number of others who will ignore us or who will scoff at us or even get angry at us simply because of who we are, simply because of the manner in which we live, simply because we don't see things the way they see things. Because if the gospel is true, then they who do not believe are condemned already to an eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And to this end, believers throughout the world in every age have been subject to ridicule. They have been subject to marginalization. They have been subject to persecution and many even subject unto martyrdom. And we who are in Christ, I mean, we're still human, right? We're, we, we still have flesh and, and, and blood and we still, have, uh, um, uh, the, the, we still have the sin nature within us. We still have that, that, that sinful um, urge and we still have the flesh within us. And being that we are human and being that we are people, we don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want to be belittled by our family members, ridiculed by our friends and neighbors. I don't want to lose my job simply for what I believe. I don't, certainly don't want to die. And so there's a temptation within the heart of the believer who lives in this different context of life to simply look at the world around them and say, you can't understand me. And when I try to help you understand me, you just dislike me and get angry at me and want to kill me. So maybe I'll just keep my mouth shut. What if I just keep my faith to myself? What if we just create a little coven, a little community, and we all go into that community and we build a wall around that community and we say, you do you and we'll do us. What if I just don't bring up anything having to do with the life that is to come? What if I don't proclaim it? then I can have my faith without having to endure the unpleasantness that comes from the world's colliding between me as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and the rest of the world as citizens of this world. And it is unto this which Paul speaks today as we continue our introduction to 2 Timothy. Paul is speaking to a minister of the gospel, right? He is speaking to a minister of the gospel, one who is called to be not only a representative of Jesus Christ by virtue of the faith in the gospel, of his faith in the gospel, but one who is called also to be a representative of the church of Jesus Christ by virtue of his ordination as a minister. And as with so many things in the ministry, so too with this concept, the introduction given here today to a minister is in direct relationship to his calling as a minister. And you need to remember that, right? That Paul is writing to someone who is ordained and commissioned unto this end. But it can also hold true in concept to every believer. And so you're going to be translating into your lives, and I'm going to be translating into my life what Paul is saying to Timothy. And it's going to perhaps hit a lot closer to home for me as one who is also called as a minister of the gospel. But that doesn't mean it's not going to touch you. So you take what Paul has said and you're going to translate it into your life as we walk through these today. So we step into our text today. You're here in, in verse 6. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance 
that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Now, we've jumped into 2 Timothy with both feet here, but remember, we are still in the introduction to this epistle. Paul has just expressed his love and his thanksgiving for Timothy, and he hasn't even really given a purpose statement up to this point. And in many ways, we would understand this very well to be this purpose statement, the burden in writing to him, that because of the faith that Paul knows Timothy has, as it was in his mother and his grandmother, as we talked about last week, Paul is writing to Timothy of this faith, stirring it up in him and stirring up the gift of God that had been given to him. And we ask first, well, what is this gift? What is this gift that Paul is seeking to stir up in him? Paul tells us that this gift was given to him by the putting on of hands. And this is all that 2 Timothy gives us regarding this gift. But that's not all that we can glean from the whole the sum total of scriptures as it relates to this. Recall back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we had spoken of a very similar idea. We, Paul had referenced specifically this same gift. And in that passage, we came to the conclusion that the gift that Paul was speaking of could be one of two things. First, it could either be salvation itself, or second, it could be the ordination unto the ministry the commission of Timothy to preach the gospel, and then all of the things that might come along with that, right? All of the, the divine enablement, the, the being apt to teach, whatever it might be that the Lord would enable in those who have been ordained unto ministry and called unto ministry. And in 1 Timothy 4, we spoke as to why it was very likely that this gift speaks towards Timothy's ordination and his commission unto the unto the ministry, rather than specifically his salvation. And in doing so, we traced the various times. I'll just give you a brief summary of what we talked about in that message in 1 Timothy 4. We traced the various times where this concept of laying on of hands is seen. There are two instances in the book of Acts where laying on of hands uh, brought about in a person. It took place in conjunction with the Holy Spirit falling upon men. There is one time where the laying on of hands took place in conjunction with divine healing. Both of these are very unique sets of circumstances tied directly to the signs and wonders which were prophesied to usher in the last days. The Spirit of God falling upon men and the uh, signs and wonders, specifically often the speaking in tongues. These are all references to the end of days from Joel Two. So those are very context-specific. They're very history-specific. Uh, they are for this period of time where the people are supposed to be regarding a dramatic transition in dispensation from God working through this individual bloodline of people, Israel, to God putting them on pause and ushering in this new economy through a group called the church. And this community in the church was now going to be the community through whom God was working. And God emphasized that, he, he identified that, he signified that in history through these signs and these wonders, everything that that, um, that, that element of Joel chapter 2 spoke of. Only half of it, by the way. Um, the other half of, of what was going on there in Joel 2 will not take place until what we would typically call the tribulation. 
Now, as we look at those circumstances, one of the, the unique things about this idea of, of laying on of hands and the Holy Spirit falling or laying on of hands unto healing is that there is no, there is no record of the, these sorts of events happening between Paul and Timothy. As best scriptures tell us, Timothy was already a believer before Paul had met him. Remember, Timothy, uh, Paul is coming back for his second visit to the area of Derby Lystra, Iconium, and he hears of this young man, Timothy, who is strong in faith. And then he takes him along on his journey from that point. So there's no evidence that Paul had known of this man, Timothy, before, uh, that they had had a relationship before, that there had been Paul laying his hands on Timothy to receive the Holy Ghost by any means. Nor do we have any record of Timothy being healed divinely from so, some sort of illness. But there is another instance where hands were laid upon men. And this instance would seem far more consistent with the fact that Paul is exhorting Timothy unto ministry. And that is various instances where men were explicitly commissioned to minister. And as those who were explicitly commissioned to minister, they had, they, they had the elders of the church lay their hands on them. We see this in Acts chapter 6, verse 6. When the seven deacons are chosen to help the apostles, and the apostles lay their hands on them and commission them to this ministry. We also see this in Acts chapter 13, verse 3. When Paul and Silas are chosen, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas are chosen to go and do their first missionary journey, they begin their journey with the church at Antioch, laying their hands on them and commissioning them for that journey. And this is by far the most consistent and most likely of Paul's meaning here. In 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul says that the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, that word meaning the elders, gave Timothy this gift. And here, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says that it was the laying on of his hands. Well, Paul could very well have been one of the elders, one of the presbytery. There's no, um, there's no contradiction there. To that end, we, I believe, can be rather confident that the laying on of hands spoken of here, like in the two instances in 1 Timothy and like we see in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 13, speak to the gifts that God divinely gave to Timothy as one who had been ordained unto the ministry. And Paul is writing, he says, to stir up that gift, to stir up that calling, to stir up the deep and abiding responsibility that rests upon the minister of the gospel, to remind Timothy what he is about, what this calling that he has is about. And particularly, remind him of one thing that simply cannot coexist with the calling that has been placed upon him as a minister. And we read of that in verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. As Paul stirs up the ministry of Timothy, he specifically seeks to stir up his courage as it relates to sharing the gospel without fear. For, Paul says, God has not given us the spirit of fear. Now, the word here translated fear is not the typical Greek word for fear, like to be afraid, that, that word phobos. That's not the word that we find here. And this is important because once again, as we talked about, uh, as we talked about a few times in Philippians chapter one, this is one of those verses that, while it's not a bad verse in, in the way that most people use it, um, it's, it's not necessarily always used properly. Uh, this is not uh, a verse explicitly intended to invoke in us 
um, that kind of courage by which we should never be afraid of anything. Now, there are those verses. The Lord is my helper. What can man do unto me and such, right? But this verse, that this word here, translated fear, is explicitly and specifically the word timidity. So this kind of fear is a timid sort of a fear. It's the fear of not wanting to do something that you think you should do or, or not stepping out to do something that otherwise a courageous person might be willing to do. It's not necessarily the idea of just across the board any sort of fear, the word timidity here. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It's also used somewhat rarely in classical Greek, but always carried this idea of timidity. That any timidity that we have in affecting the ministry unto which we have been called in Christ is not from God. Timidity is not from God. And if it is not from God, then obviously it's from a source in this world, either from the natural human elements of the flesh or from the God of this world, the prince of this world, from Satan. Now, in contrast to a spirit of timidity, what is it that comes from God as it relates to ministry? Remember, our context here is ministry. Paul gives a threefold answer. First, power. Also, love. And finally, a sound mind. The first two words are very, very common here in the New Testament. That word power, do not miss. That word of effectiveness, of ability, of power, of force, the capacity to get things done. What comes from God is enablement. The capacity to do. Effectiveness. That when a ministry is effective, to whatever degree a ministry is effective, this is what you can know. It certainly isn't the man that's doing it, if it's, done, if it's done right, if it's done unto God. You can call it a ministry when a person gets up and gives a, health, a self-help lecture, but that's not a ministry, right? That's, that's him invoking the world's elements to bring about the world's results. That's not success in ministry. That's not God's power. That's just him doing what the world does. But one thing we know is that when we are doing the work of the ministry, when we are putting ourselves out there doing God's work and we see effectiveness, we see success, that success is God's. It is God's blessing. It is God's power. And that's what comes from God, not timidity. Then he uses the word love. Of course, the very common word for love here, agape which is, generally speaking, I define it as a love that is manifest in sacrifice. Now, the third word is found much less often. It's a word that speaks of grounding, of stability, of discipline, of self-control, of being in your right mind. These are the virtues which come from God, so that no man can say when they have a calling and commission of God upon them that any measure of shrinking from that commission is of God because God supplies the power, God supplies the drive, and God supplies the, the mindset, the, the, the effectiveness, the, the, the clarity to get the work done. When God is in it, when God is working in and through me, the results are effective unto the kingdom. They are produced in love. They are sound in doctrine and in reason. And this can be helpful to me. Number one, it can be helpful to me to know whether I'm rightly related to God, but it can also be helpful to know what God wants of me. If I start a ministry and it's experiencing no power and I'm experiencing no drive to do it, and yet simultaneously I'm right with God, see, it may be that there's no power because I'm being carnal, right? It may be that there's no drive in me to do it 
because I'm being carnal. It may be that I'm, I'm not being sound in doctrine and there, therefore it's not working. But if all of those things are right, if I, if I love the Lord and I'm doing what's right and I'm rightly adjusted to the Lord and yet there's no effectiveness, maybe I'm not doing what the Lord wants me to do. Maybe that ministry that I'm doing simply to do is ministry that I shouldn't be doing. Maybe the Lord's not in it. Maybe I never even stopped to ask, Lord, I, I, I want to do this. I want to be busy about your work, but is this something you want of me? And so the results are effective unto the kingdom, produced in love and sound and doctrine and reason. And this is what God produces. And if this is the case, if this is how God enables unto ministry, then there's certainly nothing to be afraid of, is there? If God is in it, then what do I have to be afraid of? Why, why should I shrink back? Why should I hold back at all? If God is in it, then he will bless it. It's not going to be my work that's going to bless it. It's going to be God's. So don't shrink. Don't shrink back. If what I can expect when I'm doing what God has called me to do and what God has enabled me to do is power, love, and of a sound mind, then there's no reason to be timid. There's no reason to shrink back from anything that God has enabled me to do and called me to do. And to do so would be under the influence not of God, but of my own timid heart or the lies of the enemy seeking to make me ineffective for Christ. Verse 8, Paul says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. To this end, Paul calls Timothy not to be ashamed, not to be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ, not to be ashamed of the testimony of Paul, but instead to be willing to suffer the shame that comes with the gospel. And Paul says, why here at the end of verse 8? Because it's the gospel that contains the power of God. Because the gospel is the power of God. Paul would say this very thing in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. In the gospel is the realization of the righteousness of God of which men fell desperately short and by which all are condemned into eternity in the lake of fire. In the gospel is the power of God to translate a condemned sinner into the kingdom of God, declaring him righteous by grace through faith because the just shall live by faith. But the gospel does not come without a cost, does it? To put my faith in Christ is to follow Christ. To follow Christ is not only to follow him into the resurrection and eternal life, but to follow him in his example in this life, to follow him into his death. And we who know the life of Christ know it was a life defined by rejection, wasn't it? Men who did not want to hear what he had to say. Even unto death. But to all who believe, both then and now, the life of Jesus Christ is our template. It's the very fabric of our existence upon which we build our lives to this end. 
if we are unwilling to be a partaker of the various sufferings and afflictions that may come to those who boldly share the gospel, we in doing so also forfeit our access to the power of God found in the gospel. If I won't speak the gospel, then I'm not going to have any power. People say, well, we're going to go across the world and we're going to build wells and we're going to show them through our love and, and we're, we're just going to, this is called the social gospel, right? They're going to see our love. We're going to put a check in their hand. We're going to buy them groceries. We're going to do these things and, and then that's enough. They're going to see the love of God. Well, here's the problem. If they don't hear the gospel, then there is no power of God because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. It's wonderful if you want to put checks in people's hands. It's wonderful if you want to go across the world and build wells. It's wonderful if you want to do these things, but if you don't get the gospel into the ears of people, then the power of God is not there. And as a matter of fact, that's timidity. It's timidity. It is a spirit of fear that drives me to go halfway across the world to represent Christ, to build a well, but not to tell anyone the gospel. Now, let me qualify that. I went halfway across the world to China, and we were told not to share the gospel because in doing so, we do more harm than good. So we were there to introduce people to the missionary who then could take his time teaching a person what it is to have a single God and not a pantheon of gods, teaching them what it is to have a God then who became a man, and there was a process that they had to go through. That's fine. Go over there, teach English, represent Christ well, introduce him to the missionary. The missionary picks up the work. That's one thing. But it's another thing when people are there willing to listen, and I won't tell, but I'll build them a well. Or I'll put a check in their hand. Or I'll buy them groceries. And they say, why? Thank you. I'm curious as to why. And you say, the love of God, but you don't say, can I tell you the gospel? And this is the contrast here. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. Don't be ashamed of the ministry of Paul, as Paul writes it here, but rather be a partaker of the affliction which accompanies the gospel. Maybe when I buy those groceries and the person comes up and says, thank you, and you say, hey, I've done this for you to show you the love of Christ. Can I tell you about the love of Christ? And they say, get lost. Maybe I'm not going to like that. And maybe that's what's going to happen. And you say, okay, well, keep the groceries. Christ still loves you. And may maybe there it will be an element of rejection there. But Christ was rejected too, was he not? How many lepers were there on that hill? There were 10 crying out for the Lord to save them. And Jesus said to the 10, go show yourself to the priest. And as they ran, they were healed. But only one came back to worship God. I'd imagine the other nine didn't all of a sudden become leprous again just because they didn't turn around. Jesus fed the multitudes. And then as they continued to chase him, Jesus said, you did not come to hear my words, you came to eat my bread. But that doesn't mean that the bread that was in their stomachs turned to stone just because they had rejected the message but received the blessing. And yet the message was there as a means by which to show the power of God unto the gospel, right? Right? So we're called to be a partaker of the afflictions which accompany the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. Where the, where the power of God is, the gospel will be there. And we spoke just a moment ago what this power is. Paul speaks to this in verses 9 and 10. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace 
which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is the power of God, and there's so much to unpack here. We're saved and called into a holy calling. The concept of the believer being called is one which is very common in the New Testament. We see it in Romans chapter 1, verse 7. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Both of these say that we are called to be saints, that word meaning holy ones. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7 explicitly says that we are called unto holiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says that we are called unto the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 tells us that we are called unto liberty. The entire first three chapters of Ephesians and the entire first two chapters of Colossians expound on the calling that we have in Jesus Christ. Naturally, Paul also speaks often in the New Testament about his calling as an apostle and a minister of Jesus Christ. To this end, we can't really know whether or not Paul speaks in verse 9, who has saved us and called us according to an holy calling. We can't really know there if he's talking about all believers unto the holy calling of salvation or if he's talking about himself and Timothy under the holy calling of the ministry. We don't really know which one Paul is referencing here, but both fit the description very well, don't they? That this calling is not a calling according to our works, but according rather to the purposes and the grace of God, the power of God. We are called according to the gospel into the power of God. We labor in the same power unto which we were saved. You were not saved by your own works. It was not your own, your, your choice to fundamentally change your mindset to see what is unseen. It is only as you submitted yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Spirit of God illuminated your mind to the realities of the spiritual. And in the same manner, that same power of God is the power that is effective in us unto ministry. And he says that this was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8 calls Jesus the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. From this we understand that God's purpose in salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ was not a divine afterthought, not a stopgap measure to compensate for something which God did not anticipate as it related to Satan's fall or as it related to the fall and the, the rebellion of man. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was put into effect in time when Jesus was made manifest in the flesh. But salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ has been God's purpose since he created all things. And then in time, Jesus stepped into time. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures, thus abolishing the power of death and bringing in life and immortality. And that, Paul says, don't miss this, all of this through the gospel. The words of life, that foolishness of preaching. These words, when we share the gospel, when the gospel comes out of your mouth, has nothing to do with you actualizing anything through words. But when the gospel comes out of your mouth and gets into the ears of hearers, the Spirit of God takes those words and does something with them. 
It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Now, as I've explained these verses, I spoke of some very deep concepts. Jesus being slain before the foundation of the world. We being called into a holy calling given in Christ before the world began. Uh, we're not going to have time to talk through these things today. They demand an undivided focus. To that end, we will consider these things in a later sermon. But this is what Paul means when he says that the gospel, excuse me, is the power of God. It is the key that unlocks the door to eternal life and immortality, to the resurrection of the dead. The gospel does this. Creation testifies of God, but it is not creation which contains the power of God into salvation. Our lives testify of God, but if the people who watch our manner of living can't connect the way in which we live and the things in which we do and the manner in which we think to the gospel, then it has no power. The entrance of life and immortality is through the gospel. It's affected through the gospel. So that Paul would say in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And then in about as clear a statement as can be made, Paul says in verse 17 of Romans 10, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Pastor, are you telling me that if a person is deaf, they can't be saved? No, I'm not. I'm not telling you that if a person is deaf, they can't be saved. No, this is a principle, right? This is a principle that faith cometh by hearing. Are you telling me that some random person cannot open their Bibles, read it for themselves and get saved because they haven't heard someone preach it? No, I'm not telling you that either. But what I'm telling you is that God has ordained that the gospel be transmitted and that it is the transmission of the gospel from one person to another person. You hand out tracts and you don't say a word, that's okay, you're still preaching the gospel. Words are passing. They may not be coming out of your mouth, but they are passing. As they pass along their eyes, they're getting into them in the same way that they would through their hearing. Of course, ver uh, verbal transmission was significantly more plentiful in this day than was written transmission, right? And so the, the concept of preaching was in the forefront. But the idea is the transmission of the gospel. And Paul and Timothy were appointed unto this end. So Paul says in verses 11 and 12, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul thus acknowledges multiple commissions of God upon his life. First, he says he's commissioned as a preacher. This is not the word pastor. Some people will come up and say, hey, preacher, but, but preacher and pastor, though they've become synonymous in our culture, are not synonymous words in the word of God. The word pastor meaning shepherd. The word preacher simply means a declarer. And you did not have to be a pastor to be a preacher. It was a crier out of the gospel, one who declares God's truth. And this is something that goes well beyond just the pastor. You can be a preacher, as I can be a preacher. Second, an apostle. This word, of course, meaning messenger, specifically related to Paul's authority as an emissary of Jesus Christ. And then finally, as a teacher of the Gentiles, specifically speaking to his commission that God had given to him, that as Peter was commissioned to go to the Jews, Paul was commissioned explicitly to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to give them an understanding of sound doctrine. And for these appointments, 
placed upon Paul, he was suffering the indignity of arrest and would soon suffer martyrdom. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed that I'm sitting here uh, suffering the indignity of arrest. I'm not ashamed that I am going to be martyred for these things. And the reason why Paul was not ashamed is because he understood the power of the gospel and the hope of eternal life. Paul knew the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of the God whom he served. Paul knew who it was that he believed in. And whatever of this life Paul committed unto God, his time, his energy, his health, his freedom, Paul knew that as he committed it unto God, he was fully persuaded that God was keeping that, guarding that for him, that God would keep that which he had committed unto God against that day, against the day of judgment, that, that, that nothing that Paul did was in vain, that not an ounce of commitment in Paul's life unto the gospel was wasted, that not an ounce of suffering for the gospel was wasted because God, the God that Paul served, the God that Paul knew of, and he knew of it because he was in the spirit and he knew these things by the spirit of God, that God whom he knew would guard those things, would keep those things that Paul had committed unto him against that day. Paul had not gleaned a bunch of material things in this life. He's going to ask for a few things at the end of this epistle, a cloak, books and parchments, and of course, for the presence of his friend Timothy. He's going to ask for those things. But Paul had not collected much in his life. He had not kept unto himself much. He had not committed unto himself much. He had committed everything unto God. God, will you hold this for me? I'm going to suffer now. Will you hold that for me until the day of judgment? Paul says, I'm persuaded that he will keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. On the day of judgment, thus, Paul would not be ashamed because he would have a crown of glory and of, he would have rewards untold. And if the cost of the power of God in this life and the cost of the crown of glory in the life to come is the suffering of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul was fully persuaded that he could trust God with it. And to this end, he was determined that he would not be ashamed of the gospel in this life, that there would be no timidity in him. He would not be ashamed to suffer for Christ's sake, if only that others might hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever it was that Paul might suffer, it pales in comparison to the power of God in him and the rewards in the life to come. Now, I want to talk about one more thing before we just briefly apply. My, my part two will, in fact, be entirely application. I was actually intending to preach this message half this morning, half this evening. That's not going to happen now because this evening is going to be online and I can't preach this way online um, unless I bring a pulpit home and fundamentally change my video setup. Uh, I just can't do that. I, I, there's too much information. There's too much going on. I, I somewhat rely upon the overhead in a sense. It's not going to happen. Uh, so I'm going to do something different. And the second half of this, Lord willing, if, if all goes as planned, will be preached next week. So you'll have to wait next week for the direct application to this message. But I do want to talk about something before we move into that. I want to remind you that Paul is writing to Timothy, one minister to another, and with the purpose of stirring up his ministerial zeal. When we talk about sharing the gospel as a church, there are two things which often get confused, conflated in the minds of God's people. We talked about this in the Sunday school a while ago, and, and from feedback, it was a blessing to many. But I believe it has become a major hindrance to people in the church. 
There's a difference between being ashamed of the gospel, being unwilling to share the gospel, being afraid to share the gospel, or not doing what you know the Lord wants you to do as it relates to the gospel. There's a difference between that and recognizing different gifts and callings as it relates to the gospel. We all have a responsibility to share the gospel. And I think our time together today is sufficient to emphasize that by this, the Bible does not just mean live a good testimony before men. It means using our words, using, using written word, vocal word, getting the actual gospel before people's eyes and into people's ears. But what we have an unfortunate tendency to do in Christianity is to confuse the essence of our duty, with, which is to share the gospel, with the methods that we use to accomplish this duty. To this end, there's a difference between being ashamed of the gospel. There's a difference between a measure of fear or timidity as it relates to sharing the gospel and finding a method of evangelism that is in line with the gifts that God has given you. There's a difference between those two. I fear many Christians live in guilt because you aren't sharing the gospel the way others do. And then you go out and you do it. And as I mentioned earlier in the sermon, you go out and you do it and you may even become comfortable with it, but you never really see effectiveness in it. Why is that? Is it possibly because it's not in line with the gifts and calling that God has given you? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing things, but there are many Christians who live in guilt because they aren't busy beating the streets, knocking on doors, cold call confronting people they don't know with the truths of the gospel, or living in guilt because you haven't started a Bible club with your neighborhood kids and, and, and gotten the kids together from your neighborhood to do a Saturday Bible club, or living in guilt because fill in the blank, as it relates to any particular method of evangelism. And so because of that, you feel as though you're, you're falling short. And by the way, guilt is not a divine method of motivation. Anything driven by guilt should be immediately suspect in the lives of believers. Now, let me be clear. These methods are wonderful things. It's wonderful to go door knocking. It's a great thing. It's wonderful to go to a park and cold call approach people with the gospel. It's wonderful to set up a booth and have people come and debate you. It's wonderful to start a neighborhood Bible club for your kids. It's wonderful to get into the schools and share the gospel with those children. All of those things are wonderful. But let me be also be clear. Not every method of evangelism is for every person to do. Everyone is called to evangelize. Everyone is called to evangelize. But the how of evangelism might be different between you and I. And that is okay. But let me also say this. You will never know your effectiveness in any given method until you try it. And I don't just mean try it once. Until you give it its fair shake. What you might find is that you go out and you do it and you say, wow, I have a gift here. When I've, I've talked to people about my journey, I was an undergraduate, in, a double major in criminal justice and computer science software engineering. I finished those two degrees, so I have a double bachelor's, uh, in, in one in criminal justice, one in computer science. And then I went to seminary. And throughout those three years of seminary, I got my seminary degree, I uh, mastered divinity, and, and then I came and I moved directly up here and I started uh, at Legacy Baptist Church as, as the pastor here. 
The reason why I stopped where I did, I loved school. I love learning. I could have spent the rest of my life getting degrees, uh, be one of those professional student types. And then, you know, stepped right into a Bible college and, and been fine. But one of the things I wanted to do is get into the trenches because I had this conviction from the Lord that I don't, real, I don't know myself as a minister yet. And you know what I found as a minister? It's that I'm a gifted counselor. I didn't know that in seminary. I'd have gone on to get my THD, my theological doctorate, when you know what? I probably need to get a doctorate in biblical counseling. Ten years on, I know that now. Because that's where one of my true gifts lies. Now take that into evangelism. I've done a lot of door knocking in Buffalo. I've not been very effective. I can do it. I've done it a lot. But I've not been very effective. You know where I have been effective? Sitting down in the jail in a one-on-one -on -one session where I can counsel people, where I can give them the gospel directly and answer their questions because I'm good at that. That's where, the, that, that's where I am gifted. I'm not a good cold call person. I'm not even good talking. I, I can't even do small talk with my friends. I sit down, I look across from you, and immediately everything leaves my mind. Other than how was the day, what have you been learning this week, those canned questions that I have worked myself into in order to start conversations, after that I got nothing. So what do, what do I do when I go stand in front of a door, right? I've got my method, and that's all I've got. And I do it if there's nothing else to do. But I can tell you if there's something else to do, I'll probably be more effective there than at a door. Now, some of you, can, you're just conversation starters. You've always got something to say. You can break the ice and whatnot. You might be effective in a door, uh, significantly more effective in front of a door than me. You might be significantly more effective in a park than I am. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't done it, and that doesn't mean I'm not going to do it in the future. But where are your gifts? What has God enabled you to do? What I know for sure is that the power of God is evident in my ministry in the jail. The power of God is evident in my ministry in the church. The power of God is not as evident in my ministry as it relates to some of those other broader elements of evangelism that are not as in line with my giftings. Now, it doesn't mean the power of God's not going forth as I hand tracks. It's all there. So you do it, right? You do what you can do. But simultaneously, if you find the place where you're effective, that's where power, love, and the sound mind are going to be maximized in you. Now, I relayed this. For a couple of reasons. First one, to let you know. If I had just said, well, I don't know what my gifting is, so I'm just going to go continue in school, get these various degrees, what I would have found is that I was getting trained and educated in something that wasn't as much my gift. And I would have spent many more years before I found my gift if I hadn't just gotten into the trenches and realized how God could use me by doing. I would never have known the methods that God could use me for and the methods which he has gifted me if I didn't just try things, if I didn't get busy doing the work. So if you've never done any door knocking, if you've never done a Bible club, if you've never done those things, it's worth giving it a shot. 
seeing how it goes. Maybe you're gifted in an area that you did not even realize. Maybe the power of God is, uh, will undergird you in an area that you had not before understood or, or, or recognized before. So don't just write it off because it's unnerving or, discomfort or uncomfortable or whatever the case may be. And it's not my primary goal today to give you ideas for evangelism. We'll talk more about that next time. But let's think through this. Handing out tracts. Very simple, non-confrontational, non-invasive, uh, very easy to do. Anybody can do it. You don't have to gain a whole lot of courage to hand somebody something. You can even do it in such a way that people want it. Hey, have you gotten one of these yet, right? Someone says, oh, no, I haven't. Please, yes, give me one of those. Move on, move on with your day, done. Got, got the, maybe they read it, maybe they don't. You're planting seeds. Door knocking. Effective in some areas, not as effective in other areas. Time intensive. Effective among those who have a certain gifting. Perhaps others not as good at it. Um, but valuable in its place. It's also somewhat impersonal, right? There's a stranger standing at your door telling you something to be true. If someone is very ready for it, praise the Lord. Through prayer, it can be very effective, undergirded by prayer. Getting, getting uh, the words into the hearts of those who have been prepped. Cold calling, stopping people in public, engaging them. Again, time int intensive. If you have the right giftings, can be very good. Charitable ministries, collecting goods, blessing people, using the love of God to show them the gospel and then to give them the gospel directly. Food shelves, um, soup kitchens, um, those sorts of things, very, very effective. Brings people in that are in need, share the gospel. Very effective if that's your gifting. Relational evangelism. This is one that we can all really do in our own way, right? You build relationships with people. You become friends. You share the gospel. This is the one where we can really all have a part to play in it because we all have friends. We all have relationships we've built with people. Maybe the next step is just you going out and finding someone that you're not a friend with that's not a believer and building a relationship. Bible studies, one-on-one -on -one or a group, very effective. Have those friends and say, hey, anyone want to do a Bible study? Oh, hey, have you ever learned what the Bible says? Why don't we spend six weeks walking through what the Bible has to say about these things? Because you've asked me questions before, and I've got some answers. I'd like to show you what the Bible says. Very effective if that is your gifting, right? All of these and many more are ways that you can use your time and your talents and your efforts to share the gospel with people. I mean, there's, there's hundreds of ideas out there. You can find them in any number of ways. If you need ideas, come see me. I'll give you ideas. But as we step into our application today, I want to carefully distinguish between those who might not share the gospel in the same way that I would, say, or the same way you would, and those who have a spirit of timidity. It is not a spirit of timidity simply to not do something that, you're, that you know is not for you. Just because you don't have a certain ministry context does not implicitly mean that you're timid or you're afraid. Maybe you need more training and you should get that. Or maybe you have already tried it, you tried it extensively and you realize your gifting is somewhere else. That does not make you timid. There's a big difference between this and those who fail to share because they're afraid. And it is this that I speak to, not your methods, not even those of you who are frustrated because you want to share the gospel, but you haven't yet found the best way to do so but rather those who have the ability and don't use it because you are afraid. That's what we're speaking to today. 
Next time we're together, we'll spend the entire message considering various aspects of the gospel, the call not to be ashamed of it from a practical standpoint. But as we close today, let me introduce you to what will be those application points, and then I want to go back to 1 Corinthians for a moment. The points that I'm going to preach through next time are these. Number one, the spirit of timidity does not come from God, and we're going to talk through that in a practical way. And then second, from God comes first power. Remember that the gospel is not your power, but God's. Then love, if you don't tell them who will. And then finally, a sound mind. Whatever you give to the gospel will be given back to you 100-fold. But I want to go back to this concept from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. Don't ever expect. There are going to be those times where, where you come across someone, we call them divine appointments, and as you come across someone, they are absolutely ready to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's like that door is already cracked, and all you have to do is push it open. But that's not going to be, if, if the testimony of Jesus and the apostles is any uh, indicator, that's not, that's not the normal thing. If you are ministering the gospel and, and you find no, no friction whatsoever, that's, you need to ask yourself why. Why is it that you have no friction in your ministry of the gospel? Why is it that you never get a dirty look? Why is it, you know, what, what, are, are you actually ministering the gospel? if nobody walks away offended. See, because the unbeliever, the carnal mind, cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot know them. They are foolishness unto him. Anytime the gospel is brought up in the New Testament, it is brought up to some degree within the context of suffering as it relates to ministry. And so don't be surprised when you get some dirty looks. Don't be surprised when you get some door slammed in your face. Don't get surprised when somebody says, no, thank you. Don't get surprised if somebody says no, thank you in words that aren't as polite. Be ready for that. If that is stopping you from sharing the gospel, then you have a little bit of the spirit of timidity in you. Because you cannot expect anything else from those who are looking at you and seeing what is more or less a completely foreign concept. And that foreign concept is not just, oh, okay, they're different than me, but quite literally, the way that they're living, the things that they believe are telling me that I am on the wrong side of the God of the universe, and if I don't change, I will be judged, and I will be damned. That message is going to make people upset. And we need to understand that. And we need to be believe that that's going to happen, and we need to be ready to accept that. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. I don't think Timothy necessarily had uh, within him a tremendous shame for the gospel or for Paul, but it may be, like with many of us, that you just get a little comfortable. And then you start to pass on opportunities simply because you don't want to have to deal right now with the possibility of someone getting angry, with that dirty look. You just don't want to have to put up with it right now. You don't want to, to have to put up with it in this context. And that's where this creep can begin. And next thing you know, you're very comfortable and you're in your house and you've got all of the things that you need there and you don't need to talk to anyone and you don't need to be offended and you don't need to offend and then you just start, stop talking about it. 
And that's what we need to guard ourselves against. Because the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness. But God has chosen the foolishness of preaching by which to carry the power of God into the hearts of the unbelievers. So let's not be afraid. Let's not be ashamed. Let's not walk into our sharing of the gospel blind, thinking that we're not going to get any pushback, but simultaneously be willing to endure that pushback for the sake of Christ. Let us not feel guilty simply because we don't evangelize in the way that others do. Simultaneously, let us not use that as an excuse not to evangelize. Let us do our part. Let us seek unto that part. Let us always be looking for other opportunities and means. Let us seek unto that by which we are most effective, and let us maximize that, facilitating one another and doing the same unto the glory of God. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.